G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. Here's a dangerous idea for you. Uh, 2024 may not be as shitty as everyone thinks it's going to be. Or at least it might be shitty in the ways they fear it's going to be shitty, but you should feel good nonetheless. Uh, I say this because uh, many a listener has hit me up over the course of uh, these holiday, this holiday season, this southern summer here in Australia, saying, uh, Zepp's old buddy, old pal, they says to me, they says to me like that, they says, uh, why don't you give me like a, a wrap of 2023 and a prediction of what's going to happen in 2024? Everyone else does it, why don't you? So at the risk of being a Johnny-come-lately in this final week of January, can you believe we're almost uh, one-twelfth of the way through 2024? That means uh, it's, it's practically February. And then before you know it, 2024 will be over. And then we'll be a quarter of the way into the 21st century. And where are my flying cars? Nonetheless, I have some thoughts about 2024, some predictions, and uh, some positivity to inject into your little, uh, your little noggin there. A lot of people have been talking like, uh, like this piece. Take a look at this. This is uh, The World Should Fear 2024. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, you can watch it with my beautiful visage uh, beaming at you, including images of the, uh, the uh, articles that I'm referencing on the old YouTube, if you just Google YouTube, and then Josh Zeps, S-Z-E-P-S, or S-Z-E-P-S. Uh, this is Aris Rusinos uh, writing, The World Should Fear 2024 Escalation Lurks on every battlefield. Uh, and uh, let me quote a little of, of Aris here. Like an ailing mammoth, weakened by a succession of individual spear thrusts, the hegemon, he's talking about the United States here, staggers bleeding across the global scene. Though stronger than any individual competitor, America is not capable of sustaining the simultaneous major conflicts that may arise. The uh, United States has already shifted into a defensive mode, Aris writes, attempting to preserve its gains of better times against resurgent challenges and delaying the grand political reordering of global affairs for as long as possible. Yet unlike Russia, Iran, or China, America's domestic, uh, sorry, democratic system incentivizes short-term planning. And Aris goes on to say, over the course of the coming year, America will likely be roiled by its internal political dysfunction in a way we have never yet seen, and the rest of the world will live in the shadow cast by the contested imperial throne. Not just the fate of Ukraine, but also of the NATO alliance, will be determined by the battle for power in Washington, Aris writes. He goes on to say that Iran and Hezbollah and China may take this opportunity to pounce and that the world is living through its most dangerous moment in many decades. The logic of events, writes Aris, and many, uh, many wise people agree with him on this, in every theatre leads towards further escalation over the year to come. Last year was a hard year, drenched in blood and human misery through global conflict. But in retrospect, he writes... We may view it as the last golden summer of our world order, with the troubling storms still distant on the horizon. The coming year will be a historic one. We are right to dread its approach. Well, way to cheer me up, Aris. Thanks a lot, old buddy, old pal. 
Uh, there's a lot of this going around, and you know, there's probably some justification for it. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, something's going to happen in Ukraine. Something's going to happen between China and Taiwan. Something's going to happen in the U.S. election. Something's going to happen in the Middle East with Gaza and Israel. Nonetheless, I want to clarify or emphasize that in terms of the reality on the ground in Western liberal democracies, we have it very good. And the reason why most of us are depressed about the state of things is because the kinds of people who uh, speak to us repeatedly and the kinds of people whose voices are amplified by algorithms on social media and the kinds of people who swim in the circles of uh, progressive journalism like to be exercised about a particular set of problems that they continue talking about. And I include myself here as well. I'm not flawless in, in, in this. You know, I have my own hobby horses and we bang on about them a lot. I just want to take this opportunity to breathe with me a little bit yoga-like. Let's just do a bit namaste and uh, enjoy the reality, the good upsides of the reality that we also live in. Um, a lot of talk about the election, of course. And here's, a, here's something from Nate Silver uh, on Twitter. He says this, uh, you have the whole electorate basically screaming, Biden's too old. Nate Silver is a master pollster, polling expert. There's a year's worth of campaign to go, very likely some reversion to the fundamentals. Trump's legal issue is probably a larger liability than they seem now. But still, Democrats can't say they weren't warned. There's a lot of talk about this. Biden's too old. Trump obviously has liabilities of his own. Some people say that basically any average Democrat could beat Donald Trump and any average Republican could beat Joe Biden, but we don't know which, if either of them, is going to beat the other because they both have such massive glaring uh, liabilities. What Nate Silver is ignoring, or perhaps oh, I could say he doesn't know it, but of course he knows it is that in the United States of America, there is no party political system the way that there is in a parliamentary democracy like my homeland of Australia or like in the UK or Canada where a, a strong party decides on who its leader is going to be to take to the next electorate. I mean, in the United States, you have, a, a pri have primaries, presidential primaries, where stupid voters get to use the dumb tools of democracy to pick idiots uh, and there's no one to boot Biden out except for Biden. And there's no one to boot Trump out except for, Bi except for Trump. And uh, surprisingly enough, they themselves are not keen on being booted out. That's why they're not doing the booting. That's why they're not sticking the boot into themselves. Um, so you could basically draw any incumbent Democratic governor from a hat and run him against or her against Trump and expect that they would win. The reason they don't do that is not because Democrats are idiots. It's because there is no party system that has the ability to remove Biden from the ticket the way they would be in a parliamentary democracy. This is a point brought to my attention by a new book, which I'm really excited to read, which I haven't read yet because I can't get my hands on it. It's called The Hollow Parties, The Many Pasts and Disordered Present of American Party Politics by Daniel Schultzman and Sam Rosenfeld, who I hope to have on this show because it sounds fascinating. Um, basically, they say... Like voters actually, voters say they don't want Biden and say they don't want Trump, a uh, vast majority of, of voters, and yet they don't actually do the things that would be required because they're not that interested in politics. Like they don't want to sift through 
ranks of random governors and senators trying to identify which one of them suits them and their communities and which one is going to be better placed electorally. They don't want to go and volunteer for campaigns. They don't want to get involved in grassroots politics. They don't want to go door knocking. They don't want to give them money. What they want is a, a strong party that will uh, that will pick somebody who they like, and then they can go, I want A or I want B. That's basically what voters want. The American political system doesn't give them that. Hence, that's one, I thought, intriguing reason for American political dysfunction. But there's another, which is we're being deranged by our misconceptions about how bad things are. Uh, take a look at this article. We've got uh, climate change enters the therapy room in the New York Times. Ten years ago, psychologists proposed that a wide range of people would suffer anxiety and grief over climate. Skepticism about that idea is gone. And it relates the story of a therapist named Dr. Doherty, Thomas J. Doherty. He's a psychologist in Portland who specializes in climate change anxiety. Of course, he's in Portland. (sighs) Big hello to all of my beautiful Oregonian listeners and viewers out there. Uh, Doherty uh, says, uh, this is the New York Times, I'm quoting. So many people now come to him for this problem. He's built an entire practice around them. An 18-year-old student who sometimes experiences panic attacks so severe she can't get out of bed. A 69-year-old glacial geologist who is sometimes overwhelmed with sadness when he looks at his grandchildren. A man in his 50s who erupts in frustration over his friend's consumption choices unable to tolerate their chatter about vacations in Tuscany. Well, I empathise with him. I'm unable to tolerate my friends' chatter about their vacations as well, but that's just because hearing about other people's vacations is boring, not because I'm terrified about climate change. But I am terrified about climate change. But hang on. This is not healthy. This isn't right. Like, my father was born in a refugee camp in 1943, a Jew, while the Nazis were stampeding across Europe. When his mother got pregnant, do you think the world looked like a good place? Do you think she could have looked around and gone like, oh my goodness, I look, I'm going to look at my grandchildren and what kind of world are they going to be in? Of course, she was being hunted by people who wanted to exterminate her entire race. She still had kids. She still looked at her grandkids with a certain level of optimism and hope. I mean, are things worse now than they were in 1943? I am worried about climate chaos. Uh, I'm worried because it's going to be expensive to fix. I'm worried because it's going to cause huge disruptions to agriculture and therefore to human populations. It could disrupt the monsoon. It could lead to millions or hundreds of millions of refugees across South Asia. It could put enormous pressure on already fragile liberal democracies that will be dealing with social media and artificial intelligence and a whole bunch of other challenges this century. We don't need the additional hassle, essentially, of being constantly buffeted by droughts and wildfires and cyclones and hurricanes and refugees pouring across our borders. It's going to be really, really disruptive, really, really annoying and really, really expensive. And we're idiots for not having done more about it, and we're idiots for not doing more right now. But to dwell on it as if it's the end of civilization, or to think that you're 
grandchildren, you know, that the fate of your grandchildren is so dire that it makes you weep is perhaps to be consuming a little bit too much doom scrolling. Uh, look at this, for example. Here's another piece. This is eco-anxiety is real. Here's how to cope. It's okay to feel stressed out and worried about climate change, but there are ways to work through your emotions. Here, a mental health professional breaks it down. And this, the climate crisis is worse than you can imagine, writes ProPublica. Here's what happens if you try. If you try. If you try. Here's what happens if you try to imagine how dire the climate crisis is. If you just try... Uh, you don't even want to know what happens. If you succeed in imagining how bad the climate crisis is, then you just explode. You just ev evaporate. You're like uh, the Wicked Witch of the West dissolving. You cease to be. The space-time continuum folds in on itself, uh, and you are no more. But if you just try uh, to imagine the climate crisis, here's what happens. They have a whole piece about this. Pro-publica. Pro-publica or pro-publica? It sounds pretentious to say pro-publica. Mm, like I'm an Italiano or something. A climate scientist, this is ProPublica speaking, spent years trying to get people to pay attention to the disaster ahead. His wife is exhausted. His older son thinks there's no future. And nobody but him will use the outdoor toilet he built to shrink his carbon footprint. Hmm. Good for him. Did he really build the outdoor toilet to shrink his carbon footprint? Or did he just want to get away from his wife? Hmm. It's hard to know. It doesn't say. But if you even imagine what the truth is, ProPublica will write an article about how dire it is just to try. Here's another one. This is a piece in Nature. This is, these are academic things now. We're not just talking about clickbait. This is an academic journal, Nature Climate Change. A social-ecological perspective on climate anxiety in children and adolescent, adolescents. Whew. So now we're actually getting into clinically disturbing areas. Did you know, did you know that US climate emissions have fallen to the lowest level in over 30 years? Take a look at this. If you're watching the YouTubes, United States Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, this is climate change indicators. And it's got a little graph where you can see Emissions per capita going down steadily since 1990. Emissions per GDP going down even more sharply. And even absolute emissions are on the decline. They're lower in the United States in over 30 years. Oil and gas production has, soil, has soared to all-time levels at the same time. So this is partly a technological um, good news story. And it's worth understanding also that the doomsday scenarios about climate change, where we're in a kind of Mad Max hellscape where everything disintegrates and, you know, you can't, there's no arable land and we're all just fighting over water. These are mostly predictions that were made about the possibility of there being eight point, an RCP, a representative concentration pathway of 8.5. This was the nightmare scenario of climate change. You don't read a lot about the fact that that eventuality is now incredibly unlikely. Thanks to the falling cost of solar power, improvements in lithium-ion batteries, surging sales of electric vehicles, closures of coal plants under economic pressure from cheap natural gas, which is not perfect, but a lot better. 
We could be doing more. We could be investing in nuclear power. Oh, my goodness, he said nuclear power. That's not very good if you're a greenie. It should be. It should be on the table. But we don't hear a lot about the fact that, A, the worst-case scenarios for climate change are becoming so improbable that we seem to have dodged the bullet on those, and, B, the more mild things that we should be doing, and we need to be doing them a lot faster, are actually happening in the background. So by all means, let's keep pushing for it. It's crazy that we're not doing more. Um, but there are, there's good news. You know, there's this... So we're, we're not only releasing less emissions. Here's a piece. Uh, US utility-scale solar and storage prices drop more than 12% in the past year. Why didn't, why didn't you see this article? Why didn't you see this article? I bet you didn't see that the installed cost of solar photovoltaic and battery storage systems continued to drop and that utility-scale solar systems are 12.3% down in cost. This is a new report from the National Renewable Energy Lab. Why don't we see that? Because it's a bit boring, isn't it? I mean, even as I was just reading it, I was thinking, am I going to lose listeners and viewers while I talk about this? It's a bit dry. Blah, blah, blah. Good news. Can't I see some footage of a black person being shot by police? It'd be a bit more exciting. Uh, Here's another one. America's carbon emissions, take a look at this, fell for the first time since COVID. We're back to emitting like it's 1991, even though we have a much bigger economy. That's from Heat Map. These are not like right-wing places, right? This is an article by Robinson Meyer, who's the founding executive editor of Heatmap. He was previously a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covered climate change, energy, and technology. One reason why this, I find this whole news about climate change particularly heartening is because taking action on climate change is not actually very popular. Like, you ask people in a poll, do you want to do something about climate change? They go, absolutely, for sure. We need to do something about climate. I'm going to write a big banner that says climate action now. And then you say to them, how much more would you be willing to pay on your electricity bill to fight climate? They go, oh, I wouldn't pay any more. Would you pay $10 a month? No. What? $10 a month? Are you kidding me? That's Netflix. I could have an extra Netflix account. I could have two ice creams for that price. So you ask people, this is literal. I mean, this is a true, I'm not making that up. You ask people whether they would pay $100 a year to fight climate change. Only one third of Americans say yes. That's when you say, would you be willing to pay $10 a month more in electricity bills to fight climate change? Most people say no. And the problem with that is not just that people are stingy. They're not because they're willing to spend money on all kinds of things. The problem is that it gives you an understanding of just how shallow people's commitment to climate change, at least in America, is. You know, they'll say they want to do something about it because who wouldn't? It's like asking them, you know, well, do you like kittens? Do you want to do, you want to do good things for kittens? Of course I do. Do you want to spend $10 a month on kittens? Fuck no. Let the kittens starve. Let them get taken by eagles. They're just kittens. Um, so the fact that the government, the Biden administration and the Democrats are actually doing quite a lot on climate change. And the Biden administration, if you're not aware, has been the most aggressive uh, climate change administration in history by far, um, gives a good indication that quietly in the background, you know, good things are happening. We just don't amplify them because they're not sexy and they're not clickbaity. Um, It's wise that we don't amplify them, by the way, because the things that parties really care about doing... Um, that aren't very popular should be done on the sly. It's a little bit like Republicans 
you know, cutting taxes for rich people. You don't hear them talk about it much because it's wildly unpopular. But at every opportunity they can, they cut taxes for rich people. Similarly, if you're a Democrat, if you're on the left and you, you really want to do something about climate change, you should just do stuff about climate change and don't talk about it terribly much because it's not very popular. Um, another good news story that I wanted to bring to your attention for 2024, and this is good news from a partisan perspective because I want to give credit to the Biden administration where people don't seem to be giving it credit in this American election year, is um, there are all kinds of things that have been done with Medicare in America that I'm not sure you know about. There's a lot more attention to things like student loan relief, for example. Why? Because conservatives and Fox News like talking about student loan relief because they like talking about the fact that money is being stolen from hardworking plumbers and given to kids to do stupid degrees in gender studies. They don't like talking about uh, these rich, fat cat old people who are getting wealthy off the public teat by getting too much health care, which is a story they could also run but wouldn't be terribly popular. Um, the Biden administration has done a few big things relating to Medicare and prescription drugs. They've negotiated down the price of 10 big prescription drugs. This is all part of the Inflation Reduction Act, by the way. You know how, like, nothing can get done by Congress in America unless you do everything in one huge act and you call it the We Love Kittens Act and everybody signs on to it and then you just stuff it full of all the things that you want to get done. Well, the Democrats did that with the Inflation Reduction Act, negotiating down the price of 10 big prescription drugs, putting a cap on the amount that you can pay for prescription drugs. I mean, that's huge every year, so you don't have to pay more than a certain amount if you're on Medicare. Uh, introducing a tax that discourages companies from raising prescription drug prices. And importantly, given that Americans are so bloody fat and so many of them are getting diabetes, the Biden administration uh, capped the price of insulin at $35 a month. Um, they've also undertaken these student loan forgiveness initiatives, which you hear a lot more about, um, partly because, as I said, Fox News and the conservatives like talking about them because they can demonize them, but also partly because the chattering classes like me, the sort of, you know, general lefty, journo, kind of a little bit woke journalism people love talking about student loan debt because they have student loan debt and they're not old people on Medicare. If you looked at the coverage of, especially on Twitter and social media, things that the Biden administration has done, you'd hear a lot and see a lot of blather about student loan forgiveness and not a huge amount about the much more important reforms that they've made to Medicare, in spite of the fact that a much bigger share of the population is on Medicare than has student loans. 50% more Americans currently receive Medicare than have student loan debt. Not to mention the fact that 100% of Americans who survive into old age will be on Medicare, whereas you know only a fraction of people will ever have uh, student loan debt. So this is just one phenomenon, one way of looking at the phenomenon of the the, the way that the th that things land for you because of what you see on social media and what you see online is filtered, of course, through the prism of the biases of the people who are doing the uh, the reporting. Um, so let's look at some good news, uh, some other good news, shall we? Uh, here's a good one. This is uh, a story about the San Francisco BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit Authority. Uh, this is uh, 2024, January 2024. It has, it has a new project, which is called the Fleet of the Future Cars for San Francisco's uh, Metro. 
it has come in under budget and faster than they expected. It'll cost $394 million less than when the contract was awarded in 2012. This is hilarious that it takes, that 2012 is when it started. Like, wow. You talk about like, imagine China or like Saudi Arabia announcing uh, an upgrade to their metro in like, I don't know, Dubai or Shanghai. Uh, Yes, I know Dubai's in the UAE, not Saudi Arabia. You get my point. It would be done in four months and it would cost whatever they want it to cost. But here it was 2012, it was announced, and this is 12 years later, but $400 million less, and uh, the fleet of the future is a success story, uh, 775 cars, it only cost $2.5 billion instead of, uh, only cost $2 billion instead of two and a half, and uh, now San Francisco is the better for it. Why didn't you see a story about that? Why is this the first that you're hearing about that? Because you're not, you haven't been listening to old Zepps, that's why. Uh, not that I've been talking about it much either, but I am now redeeming myself. Uh, These are the sorts of stories that if you actually wanted people to think that the left is sane, you would spend time talking about. Here's an example of public transport being run by a city in a way that is delivering results for commuters and is keeping pace with the latest technology and is coming in under budget. That should be the good news story that MSNBC and lefties at, I don't know, The Guardian and The New York Times are talking about all the time. Instead, they're talking about their hobby horses, um, student loan debt and uh, culture war stuff. Um, Here's another good story. I like this one too. Uh, Insurance is coming back to healthcare. The 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 rate of uninsured people in America has dropped dramatically since 2021. Uh, The enrollment in uh, Obamacare marketplaces is up 25% compared to 2023, compared to last year, and nearly 80% compared to 2020. So the number of of people in America who don't have health insurance is at an all-time low. And here's another good news. USA Today, do you need an urgent operation or prescription? Your wait time for approval just got cut down. This is a new federal rule. It's another Biden administration uh, rule, which uh, was just unveiled uh, last week as of the time of recording, so uh, mid-January. Doctors are cheering this new federal rule, which will speed up health insurance company decisions on whether to authorize or deny medical care or treatments for millions of patients. Uh, it uh, basically means that they that the health insurance industry can't drag their feet uh, anymore. And uh, so things are getting better for healthcare in the United States. I'm just offering these things, not necessarily as a way to say that everything's fine and dandy, but as little jigsaw pieces or little mosaics, shall we say, in an overall tapestry of things getting generally better in incremental ways for people. Specific, I'm talking, specifically talking about America, but you could take the analogy for pretty much any Western liberal democracy when center-left parties are allowed to make incremental change. Uh, it's not sexy and it's not glamorous and it doesn't grab you by the scruff of the neck and shake you around and it's not exciting. Um, but this is the bread and butter. This is the meat of good governance. Um, the problem is that most of the people who talk about governance and who talk about politics and who, who discuss the political horse race are uh, a type of sort of left-wing, young, educated urbanite. 
they are part of the Democratic Party or they are part of the centre-left, but that doesn't mean that they actually reflect the views of what left-wing voters are particularly interested in. You know, they're not re representing the views of Hispanic union union members or elderly church-going church black uh, women. They are young, largely white, university-educated lefties, and they are the ones who are deciding what the left-wing narrative uh, tends to be. Which brings me to my real point here. There's a fascinating paper by Catherine Gimbrun, Lisa Bates, Seth Prins, and Catherine Keyes. It's entitled, and I'll show it to you here if you're on YouTube, The Politics of Depression, Diverging Trends in Internalizing Symptoms Among U.S. Adolescents by Political Beliefs. This is in uh, the Journal of Mental Health. So this is a survey about the divergence in depression by political ideology and also by gender. And it finds that young people are, let's just say, they're not upbeat at the moment. You may have noticed this. The youngsters, the youngsters aren't okay. They think everything's shitty. And this paper basically affirms the reasons why and says, how could you expect them? to be upbeat. I mean, we're basically, we're basically in Nazi Germany in 1943, aren't we? Allow me to quote from this paper. Um, they talk about this period when the adolescents of today were coming of age, and they say, structural racism, police violence against black people, pervasive sexism and sexual assault, and rampant socioeconomic inequality became unavoidable features of political discourse. That is, they're talking about over, you know, the past five years or so. Now, that's true. But a very interesting point was made by one of my favourite analysts, who, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll have heard me bang on about before, Matt Iglesias, who has a great blog called Slow Boring, which, if you're going to subscribe to anyone in addition to me, you should subscribe to... Matt. And by the way, if you're just listening to this or you're just discovering me for the first time, you're just watching this, go to Substack and at least join the community on the free plan in Substack where you can get our newsletter, our weekly newsletter about things that we're talking about and you can keep in touch with me and you can comment on uh, on the podcast and so on. We're going to be doing more and more episodes of the podcast. The, the main flagship show here is Uncomfortable Conversations where every week I have a, uh, you know, a, a, an uncomfortable conversation with one of the most interesting people in the world about some provocative issue and we talk about it in ways that are free from bullshit and, and so on and that will continue to be free. Uh, and you can just subscribe to the podcast for that. But now that I have more time on my hands and I'm making this my full-time career, uh, you will also be getting at least one, if not two additional pieces of content, which will be sort of chats and banters with interesting people and celebrities about the the uh, the week's news, a kind of a panel show. And then I'll have things like this, which I'll just call our Just Josh segments, where I'm trying to analyze something uh, for you in hopefully a useful way, or maybe showing the ways in which the media is having conversations wrong and the way in which uh, through my uncomfortable conversations prism, I believe we should be having conversations in a more constructive and more empathetic and uh, more optimistic uh, and truer, more constructive way. Um, so for all of that stuff, go to Substack, 
www.uncomfortableconversations.com or is it the other way around? It's one of those things. Just Google Uncomfortable Conversations uh, Substack. And uh, also for, I think it's $5.99 or is it $6.99 US a month, you will get all of that audio. You'll get your own private feed, uh, which will uh, give you absolutely everything that we release. Otherwise, some of those things will be behind a paywall if you're subscribed to the free thing. But either way, subscribe uh, and you'll get lots and lots of uh, great free stuff. And, and you won't just be getting stuff for yourself. I should also add that you are making a vote, essentially, for independent media. For those of you who aren't familiar with my career, I've just left the public broadcaster, the ABC, where I had a daily three-hour talk radio show uh, and uh, just felt like I was too spicy for that place and there were not there were conversations that I couldn't have there that I want to be able to have and there was no financial reason to not be doing this independently but that financial uh, you know ability for me to operate independently is contingent on and dependent on you good people bothering to get out your phone and uh, go to Substack and click on the subscribe uh, button and uh, throw some production money our way. I promise I'm not going to spend it on hookers and blow and free trips to Rio. It will be reinvested back into this operation and you can consider it something of a vote. I just sort of have, for me, I have a pool of money that I put aside. You know, it might only be, you know, maybe it's 50 or 80 bucks a month. It's something like what you used to pay for a cable television subscription and that is the money that you spend on voting for independent media and in voting for finding out about the world in ways that you condone now that you might want to spend that on alex jones you might want to spend that on wild-eyed communists and revolutionaries or if you're listening to this and you're still this far into the episode uh, maybe you like the cut of my jib in which case make it possible for for people like me to do what we do uh, throw us some some shekels uh, and subscribe, and then you get the benefit as well by getting all of this great content. Nonetheless, that's not my point. Uh, well, that was a lovely and self-serving and circuitous uh, diversion, I must say. Um, so Matt Iglesias talks about this uh, this piece, this, uh, this, this journal article analyzing the depression of young people and attributing it uh, to uh, structural racism, police violence against black people, pervasive sexism, sexual assault, rampant socioeconomic inequality, becoming unavoidable features of political discourse. And Matt says that sounds to him less like a causal explanation of why progressive teens are more depressed than it does like listening to a depressed liberal give an account of recent American politics. He says, note, for example, the negative framing of the fact that progressives have used their agenda-setting power to make structural racism and pervasive sexism and rampant socioeconomic inequality into unavoidable features of political discourse. One could instead, writes Matt, say, this is what the path to victory looks like. Progressive activists and intellectuals have succeeded in getting more people to pay attention to what they think are the most important problems. Just notice that. Just notice that when you're scrolling around on social media and you're listening to blowhards bang on about the woes of the world, they are talking from perspectives that reflect their biases They are talking about things that they wish to amplify, that they wish to disseminate, and they're often talking through a filter of an algorithm that is selecting things that will agitate you, 
that will either reinforce things you already believe or that will demonize positions that you don't agree with, that will trap you more and more in an echo chamber. So the fact that we're talking a lot and paying attention to the dispossession of people, to racial injustice, to white supremacy, to whatever else might be getting you down, is itself evidence of progress, of the fact that we are shining a light on things that previously didn't have a light shone on them. And when a, you know an asteroid is headed towards the Earth and there actually is a concrete, real, and imminent threat to humankind, then we can all focus on that. But until then, let us enter 2024 with a spirit of optimism, aware to the challenges that exist, uh, up for being big enough to defend Western liberal democracy against Putin, against uh, Xi Jinping, should they try anything further. Um, But let's also be proud of ourselves for what we've achieved and grateful to the people who have bequeathed us with the goodies that we currently enjoy. So I'm going into 2024 excited for myself, excited for my family, uh, full of gratitude to the people around me, full of gratitude to you for allowing me this exploration. And I invite you to do the same. For all of its faults, it is still a beautiful world. Enjoy it. I'll see you next week.